The black holes of nature are the most perfect macroscopic objects there are in the universe. The only elements in their construction are our concepts of space and time. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Matt, who said that? It was Subramanian Chandrasika. Now that is a name and a half. We're going to talk about him, Jamie, because it's his birthday on Friday or today as the podcast comes out, especially considering what happened this week. I think it's totally worth talking about him. Where do we start, though? Well, let's start with where he was born in Lahore in the Punjab. Which at the time was British India, which is now, of course, uh, Pakistan. They make the best curries, in my opinion. They're certainly up there. When I say that, I've never been there, but I have been to a Lahore restaurant in London and it was incredible. A lot of curries are very Britishified when you have them over here, but that's not a bad thing. There's some very good British curries. Very true. But uh, yes, he, he died in August 1995 from a sudden heart attack, was born on 19th of October, 1910. Yes. Over the last few weeks, we've been having a few nightmares. We Just after we recorded the last podcast, we had the Soyuz hiccup. Yes, it was a hiccup. But obviously Hubble had gone into uh, safe mode. Hmm. Uh, Kepler's running on fumes. And uh, Chandra Space Telescope had gone into safe mode as well but luckily that one's completely recovered and it's and it's fine but of course chandra space telescope is named after subramanian chandrasika it is chandra being the uh shortened name do you know how it got its name uh no nasa had a um had a, a naming con a competition for the third of its four great observatories yeah of which chandra is one of them and uh yeah six thousand entries and the name chandra was chosen that's how that's how much of a legend chandra was back in 1979 did anyone call it telly telescope <laughs> this is back in 79 before uh. post ironic humor was a thing <laughs> <laughs> oh damn it a much simpler time matt uh, yes it was a simpler time i was only eight 20 years later, it flew on Space Shuttle Columbia, after it was named. Um, yeah, so Chandrasekhar was, uh, in 1930, was offered a scholarship by the Indian government after being rather cool at school uh, and uh, went to Cambridge University, Trinity College. Not too uh, shabby. Not too shabby, where he joined R.H. Fowler, who had was impressed by his one of his papers that he'd written as a, I guess as an A level student or a student of that age mm. to get into university uh, and before it even arrived on his plane journey over he was um, adding relativistic corrections to Fowler's work <laughs> <laughs> incredible <laughs> so during his time there obviously he really impressed everyone and he, he so he he flew around a little bit and hung out with Max Born hung out with Paul Dirac, hung out with Niels Bohr, (laughs) the greats of physics. Um, 
while he was at university, he developed the theoretical model explaining the structure of white dwarfs, which is what he really is famous for. Mm. Uh, and, and he took into account this relativistic variation of mass with the variation of, velocity of velocities of electrons that compose their degenerate matter. Sort of the Jamie Franklin of electrons, aren't well, they? Well, I, I could tell you all about it, but we just haven't got time today. Okay, well, I'll just quickly say, yeah, so he showed that the mass of a white dwarf could not exceed 1.44 times that of the sun, the Chandrasekhar limit. Duh. So that's, uh, that's his most famous kind of thing, the Chandrasekhar limit. Uh, but Sir Arthur Eddington hmm. was not impressed. Oh. And in an infamous encounter at the Royal Observatory, Astronomical Society, the RAS, in London in 1935. They had a bit of an argument, and he publicly ridiculed the concept of the Chandrasekhar limit. Uh, but uh, subsequently, 40 years later, being proved wrong by computers and the identification of actual real black holes. Um, oh, well, I hope you Chan- said sorry. Well, Chandrasekhar, uh, in several interviews, said that he thought that Eddington's behaviour was in part racially motivated oh. which prompted Chandra to leave the UK for the US in 1937 where he became a faculty member of the Chicago University or University of Chicago until his death in 1995 oh, okay in 1983 he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics with William A Fowler for the theoretical studies of the physical processes of importance to the structure and evolution of the stars. But he was a little bit upset because that was his early work and he thought it was slightly denigrating of his lifetime's work. Well, yeah, okay, but it's still a Nobel Prize, mate. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, still a Nobel Prize, but I guess maybe he thought Nobel Prizes were a little bit kind of, yeah, whatever, because his uncle, C.V. Raman, uh, was also awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1930. (laughs) (laughs) So it obviously runs in the family, brainy family. It really is. If if you want to talk about stellar structures, white dwarfs, stellar dynamics, stochastic processes, radiative transfer, the quantum theory of hydrogen anion, hydrodynamic and hydromagnetic stability, turbulence, equilibrium, and the stability of ellipsoidal figures of equilibrium, (laughs) general relativity, mathematical theory of black holes, or the theory of colliding gravitational waves... Chandrasekhar's your man. Well, Matt, what else is there? <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I, I mean, actually don't know. Seriously. <laughs> and in World War Two, he was even involved with um, ballistics and ballistic research. And uh, the Manhattan Project wanted him, but they couldn't get his visa in time. So Oppenheimer was aware of his work. So, Matt, he did work under the philosophy of systematization. Uh, what a scientist tries to do essentially is to select a certain domain a certain aspect or a certain detail and see if that takes its appropriate place in a general scheme which has form and coherence and, if not, to seek further information which would help him to do that. The wise words of Chandra Seeker himself. How would you like them apples? Do you know what? I absolutely love it. And um, What's incredible is he really stuck to his guns here. So, so mm. his unique style was to master several fields of physics. So he, he, his working life 
is divided into distinct periods. So he just basically studied a very specific area, published loads of papers, and then wrote a book summarizing the major concepts in that field. <laughs> so God. this so this is what he did. From 1929 to 39, his first decade, he studied he studied stellar structure. Nobel Prize. 1939 to 1943, he focused on stellar dynamics and the theory of Brownian motion. 43 to 50, concentrated on the theory of radiative transfer and the quantum theory of negative ion of hydrogen. 1950 to 1961, sustained work on turbulence and hydrodynamic and hydromagnetic stability. 1960s, studied the equilibrium and stability of ellipsoidal figures and general relativity. 71 to 83 studied uh, mathematical theory of black holes and in the late 80s worked on the theory of colliding gravitational waves. And so he became an expert in all of those. <laughs> I just think he must have been so lazy. I mean... Yeah, basically he's an, he is, as my kids would say, an absolute bang-out. And <laughs> so he, he, uh, we, we should just, there's a, just a few little things that we should mention, some weird ones. Mm. So in 57, he was the editor of the Astrophysical Journal. And yeah. Eugene Parker of the Parker Solar Probe fame, the only person, living person ever to have a space probe named after him, submitted the paper that uh, essentially got him this uh, fame about solar winds, and um, it was rejected. But because uh, Chandrasekha was the the editor, he um, went, no, no, I can't see anything wrong with it, and published it anyway, which is very unusual. That is unusual. Peer-reviewed by the editor. Mm. Uh, there's an asteroid named after Chandra. Um, the Himalayan Chandra telescope is obviously named after him. Uh, he guided 45 students to their PhDs, Carl Sagan studied maths under him at University of Chicago. Whoa. And when University of Chicago had a symposium on Chandra's 100th birthday, it was attended by Roger Penrose, Kip Thorne, Freeman Dyson, Yayant V. Nalika, Rashid Shunyev, G. Srinivasan, and Clifford Will. Heavyweights. Heavyweights. No matter how bad my pronunciation of their names is. Exactly. Space Legend of the Week? Well, pretty deserved, I'd say. Yeah, I reckon so. Tip of the cap. Matt, what, else, the cap. Has been, what else has been going on? I woke up this morning to the very sad news that Paul Allen has passed away. Oh. Sad, isn't it? That's he died at good. 65 from, uh, from some cancer. Oh, that's young. Very young. But here's an interesting fact. He was described by Quincy Jones as the second coming of Hendrix. Whoa. That's a quote. If Quincy Jones says he's good, then I'm, I'm yeah, willing to go with that. Yeah, probably all right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Quincy Jones is also a bang-out. <laughs> yeah, obviously, Paul Land's most famous for, for uh, persuading his mate Bill Gates to uh, set up a computer company called Microsoft. Yeah, I don't think you'd... Uh... <laughs> I don't think you'd stop thanking that person, would you? <laughs> no. So, uh, yes, incredibly rich. He obviously makes the Strato Launcher the largest plane that will ever fly. And, it, of course, what's really sad is he won't get to see it fly. That is sad. Also the winner of the X Prize with the first commercial space plane. He spent a lot of money on things like Ebola research and things like that and uh, an inc like huge amounts of uh, philanthropy. Well, I think uh, we should uh, 
definitely dedicate this podcast to him. What an amazing man. Greatly missed. And what a shame that he won't see Stratolauncher fly. What a sad, isn't oh, it? Oh, that is sad. Well, thoughts are with his friends and family. In a very close escape of Nick Haig and Alexei Ovchinin. Yes. I mean, wow. What a moment. <laughs> yeah, so they were recovered in good health after the emergency landing of the Soyuz MS-10. Now, Matt, break it down for me. What happened? Those who uh, have uh, been living under a rock who were on, or were on holiday when all this happened, um, it's, I guess it's one of the biggest news stories of the year, is that, yeah, the, uh, for the first time in 35 years, the Soyuz had a, had a, a failure, a, in manned flight, that is, uh, a failure. So MS-10, 139th flight of the Soyuz spacecraft, carrying Expedition 57, to the International Space Station. But after a few minutes after liftoff, there was a contingency abort because one of the boosters had failed and uh, the capsule returned to Earth. I mean, we forget that it's been so reliable that we forget that we've almost just got used to nothing happening. Mm. But of course, it's, you know, it's pretty dangerous business, isn't it? It is. It is very dangerous. So we'll we'll see it's how dangerous. It's just remarkable that this sort of thing doesn't happen more, Matthew. It it is, but it's not good considering the controversy that's already around MS nine. This MS ten yeah. failure is not good for the for Roscosmos. But it well, isn't as we good. It, the the story did get better during the week. Um, not quite sure how, but anyway, the MS ten was aborted. And it's the first time that that's happened in 43 years. Sorry, I did say 35 earlier on. Since 1975 was the last time uh, 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 they had to do a high altitude abort. Um, Mm. And it looks like what happened was, as it flew up, one of the boosters, as it was being ejected, didn't eject properly. And they think it's to do with the top part not, not being pushed away properly by like a jet of oxygen that pushes the top part away okay. from a sort of ball-bearing joint at the top. Um, and because it wasn't pushed away, as it came down, it scraped along the core of the rocket and obviously damaged the rocket to an extent that uh, it started falling apart. At which point the spacecraft itself goes, there's something wrong here. And this is at 31 miles high, 50 kilometers. Oh my God, imagine <laughs> being in there. So uh, the, the spacecraft itself, uh, computers go, right, something's wrong, and goes through the um, abort procedure. But at this point, it's so high that the launch escape tower had already been uh, ejected. And it's only recently, and since the 80s onwards from the Soyuz T and TM series, that the shroud that covers the uh, capsule, or I suppose what people, some people call um, the fairing uh, that covers the capsule, it's only recently that they've installed these what's known as RDG motors, which I believe are the 11D86OM uh, isolating mm. motors. Uh, yeah, that's them. That's them. And they're in the shroud. And uh, they basically the sort of there's a there's I think there used to be like a sort of ten second window where there was no abort there was no way to abort. So once you get to a certain height, you can abort just using your normal rockets because there's no sort of thrust behind you, Uh, and obviously you can use the escape tab. But there used to be a sort of area where you couldn't abort. So they put that right with these RDG motors, and they're the ones that actually fired. 
and uh, took the right, th- okay. and took the crew to safety. So that was a ballistic trajectory back home. And by ballistic, it means, you know, when you throw a stone up in the air, it makes a sort of parabolic arc. Hmm. That is a that's that is that is kind of like the definition of ballistics, as in it, that that kind of trajectory. Um, okay. So that is the trajectory it makes. It just sort of goes up in the air and and then just starts coming down. Now, that is a very high G thing to go through. About six to seven times Earth gravity. Yeah, six or seven G uh, during that. And and normally what happens is the Soyuz uses its aerodynamic shape to skip along the atmosphere and, and, and keep up in the atmosphere. And you can control it like a like an aircraft and so that you can come into a landing zone where you want to land roughly uh but it also is a lot more controlled whereas ballistically you are just falling and it is quite rough to say the least (laughs) so i just think i mean uh, as well as that how terrifying that must have been for the astronauts Hmm. imagine how frustrated you'd be uh, you know as you land and you're safe Imagine how annoyed you'd be at just, uh, it's like, oh, you know, how long till we get back up? What next? Imagine being the family watching that happen, going, because, oh, yeah, it's, it's a few, it was, quite, it was quite a long time before the rescue teams had got to them and, and made mm. uh, contact with them. But, yeah, so they were, they were a search and rescue team found the spacecraft 250 miles from the launch site in Jikskirzgen in Kazakhstan. Mm. And uh, NASA were able to contact them. They were flown back to Baikonur, uh, where the families um, met them and gave them a big hug, which was a really touching moment. And um, mm. Russian government announced that all future manned Soyuz launches are suspended. There's a, a state commission to investigate the incident and also a criminal investigation. And this is at the time Jeez. where MSO9 is also in a similar situation where there's <laughs> a state commission and possible criminal a investigation. Cr- a criminal investigation? Why? Well, just in case it's uh, it's sabotage or some form of um, neglect, you know, industrial neglect. Wow. You know, when you're, when you're talking about people's lives, in, in, I guess in the same way that, you know, on a, on a gig, if, if uh, someone, if a bit of the PA fell down, there'd be a criminal investigation then as well, I suppose. Got it, got it. The repercussions are the ISS crew, they're fine, of course, but their MSO9 capsule, the one with the hole in it, <laughs> um, is mm. the only lifeboat that they have to return back to Earth now because uh, they, they should have had MS10 up there as a uh, lifeboat to come back. But the, wor- right. but the Soyuz capsules, they have a limited lifespan of 200 days, and that's because of the peroxide fuel that they have. It, it starts decomposing, so it can't be used. It only lasts until uh, late December. So if they are to if they are to get off, they need to get off before December, the late December, which which leaves NASA and and everyone else in a in a terrible position that the ISS might have to be abandoned and uh, controlled from Earth, which is fine. But of course, mm. um, uh, if there's any kind of anything that goes wrong that requires the human touch, uh, 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 like a fire extinguisher, for example, or something needs fixing, 
you know, may have to be deorbited into the ocean, which would be a disaster considering we've only just started doing proper science on the International Space Station. It costs two billion a year and it costs whatever it costs to, to put up there in the first place. A lot of money. So it would be absolutely catastrophic if that would, would, would happen. It really would be. Let's just keep our fingers crossed that they've learned something from this. Yeah. Well. You know? Well, one of the one of the things that uh, Jim Bridenstine said, which um, absolutely is, is this whole idea of dissimilar redundancy. I like that. Hmm. Was the fact that um, what you need is more than one nation capable of getting up to the International Space Station, so that if a launch vehicle is suspended, you can still get there. You've got to have this dissimilar yeah. redundancy, which... Where's the plan B? Well, the, uh, you know, and the plan B has been uh, SpaceX and Boeing with their commercial launches. But the latest news is from Bridenstein is that he was saying that he's, uh, at the moment, uh, thinks that they're going to carry on being to, to schedule. And that by the time they've completed their uh, investigation, which is going to be over very soon, uh, it'll just be back to normal. So that means, and the schedule was um, that they'll be flying early December. Blimey, okay. So he reckons that, that it's not going to halt it at all. Yeah, and that may be moved earlier to late November, <laughs> depending on the outcome of the investigation. So we might actually see an Blimey. earlier flight than scheduled. Well, I guess that makes sense. Blimey. Yeah. Good luck, boys uh, and girls. Uh, <laughs> two things that won't be happening that we mentioned on the same podcast is the United Arab Emirate astronauts will not be flying in April now. Almost mm. certainly they will get bumped off their flight by of Chevnin, um, who obviously have his flight reassigned. Um, yes. So that they've definitely lost their thing. But, of course, there's loads of experiments as well on the ISS that will be affected because it requires multiple astronauts to be working on them, and there's only really two astronauts able to work on, any, on experiments at any one time now. Uh, so NanoRacks um, uh, said that a lot of their experiments they can do from the ground, and they've been working on that to relieve the astronauts of pay of uh, you know workload. So some of the experiments can still carry on as normal, but there's a whole it will basically start falling behind schedule. But interestingly, they were ahead of schedule because they had more astronauts. Uh, US had more astronauts on board than normal because they were taking advantage of the fact that there was a, that the Russians had cut back on their cosmonauts to save a bit of money. Ah, okay. Mm. I just am glad that no one got hurt this time. Yeah, I I must admit when that first happened, I was just thinking of all the news stories that are going to be affected by it that we talk about and it was practically all of them. You know, the commercial launch was definitely going to be affected. Everything that we talked about in terms of the ISS and things like that. I mean, we, it's still, the ISS, I suppose, is in slight peril. But more the fact, if you listen to our last few podcasts, we kind of semi-taking the mickey out of Russia's space program because it's it's clearly something's not quite right. This is it. There's going to have to be a huge change if they are to go forward. Mm. So what else is happening, Matt? Richard Branson uh, has suspended um, the Saudi Arabian investment, the billions of investment in space mm. ventures because of this missing journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, um, which um, apparently wandered into a the Saudi Arabian uh, consulate in Turkey and uh, was murdered. 
Well, I, I saw a quote, which I obviously need to look into a lot more, but I saw a quote that said uh, the, the interrogation went wrong. It's like, yeah, it it, it, it looks like it's <laughs> really gone wrong there. Yeah, so... Um... But do you know what blows my mind, Matt, mm-hmm. is, and I don't want to get too political, let's keep it space, mm-hmm. but um, it's kind of annoying that our government and people like Branson... And now, and US, now saying, oh, well, we're going to sanction Saudi Arabia and all oh, our investment, it's not going to happen anymore. But you're thinking, do you have any idea <laughs> about the human rights that go on in Saudi Arabia Well, for, for, for decades? I'm, I am going to get yeah. political. I'm going to say that all the three countries we've mentioned so far, United Arab Emirates, who currently are torturing a, a British man at the moment. You've got Saudi mm. Arabia, who's, yeah, it just doesn't bear thinking about. And of course, Russia, who think it's okay to just go around murdering British citizens on the streets of Britain. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, none of them. It's maybe we are sort of mixing with the wrong people. And how does Putin get away with saying, oh, no, they're just civilians, you know? Yeah, it's and and then cleanup. gets busted, and, and it just seemingly just gets swept under the carpet. It's like, are you crazy? Anyway, let's get back to space. I will say this: I think that space so far has has been a very very good place for for countries to engage and uh, work together for the peaceful exploitation of space. Totally agree. Let's leave it at that. One of my favourite news stories this week was Eric Berger did a piece on, and we've we've uh, talked about uh, your mate. You you brought this to my attention, the Blink One Eight Two frontman. Oh, that's right. Yes, Tom DeLong. <laughs> yeah, he's unbelievable. <laughs> so his UFO project is thirty-seven million pounds. Now, what this is funny. So Eric Berger put in debt, but it's not in debt. It's um. What did the guy put? I'm going to have to go to this tweet. Uh, The guy put, um, he had a right go at Eric. (laughs) I'm not going to name this guy, but he had a go at Eric because because, um, it was a deficit rather than a debt. But still, the story still holds as far as I'm concerned. What a it ab- is an amazing story. What an absolute <laughs> muppet <laughs> for spending oh, yeah. all this money on this UFO project. I mean, I had no idea until the Joe Rogan podcast came out, which is what I sent you. Yeah. And if you haven't listened to it, uh, our beloved followers, please uh, Google Joe Rogan Tom DeLong podcast. You can watch it on video or on audio, and it is it's incredible. I mean, it is it's hilarious that he is not joking. <laughs> That's what is hilarious about it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, um, it's, it's, it's like Muppetry to the maximum. So there yeah. we go. And this, yeah, this guy who's having a go at Eric, Eric Berger because he's got his facts ever so slightly wrong. It's like, yeah, but the rest of the story is still right. And, it, and, it's, exactly. and, and the fact is, it's a $37 million deficit on a stupid yeah. UFO. That 37, he should have been more like Paul Allen and, and spent that $37 million on something way more useful. Like maybe giving it to exactly. universities to get kids through their PhDs, etc. Why don't you educate them on actually sourcing, how to source facts, how to get them peer-reviewed, and how not to believe 
batshit crazy conspiracies all the time. Yeah, absolutely ridiculous. Um, Jamie. Yes, Matt. I have got my interview with Miles Carden, the Spaceport oh, Director finally. of Spaceport. I'll tell you what, I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> I know, it's been in the can for a while, and uh, I've not been... Every time I'm going to, we were going to put it out, we had a, uh, another interview that had to be slotted in before because it was more time time constraints. We put this one in the bank, and now it's time to withdraw. <laughs> <laughs> time to make a space withdrawal. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, I like it. But before we do, I want to wish Ariane 5 launch of the third and final cornerstone mission of the Horizons 2000 Plus program. Yes. Beppy Colombo. Excellent stuff. Good luck. Guys. I feel very close to it because I actually saw it being fueled and, and, and stood right next to it. Last week was a bad week for space. This week, Matt, it's going to be good. I can tell. Miles Carden. Uh, Egute. Roll it. Here I am at uh, the New County Hall in Truro. I'm joined by George, and I'm also joined by Miles Carden, who is the Spaceport Director of Spaceport Cornwall. Hello, Miles. Good morning. Uh, so, first of all, look, the question I'm dying to ask is how did you become a Spaceport Director? <laughs> you might ask. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a relatively long story, but I think a probably logical one. Um, I mean, I've worked at uh, Cornwall Airport New Guinea for uh, almost eight or nine years, and so I've got a good background in uh, aviation aerospace, and obviously uh, the spaceport is a horizontally launched spaceport, so it's about aircraft and um, aviation, really, predominantly. So I've got a good basic understanding how those aircraft are going to operate. Um, so actually, uh, when we're developing other business areas at, at the airport, uh, you know, spaceport was you know very very natural fit uh, yeah. for what we're doing with other other technology. We're looking at unmanned aircraft, drones. You may call them so. Uh, space planes uh, were quite an easy fit for me, really. So I sort of fell into it in a way, but with a fairly good background in aviation and aerospace. Excellent. So, spaceport Cornwall's all about horizontal launch. What is it about horizontal launch that's special and and makes it worth pursuing? Well, yes, absolutely. We are only horizontal launch. We're not a safe uh, or a good place to do vertical. Uh, we'll leave that to others. We'll leave that to Scotland and Sutherland for the new spaceport in Scotland. And that's a natural fit. So we always knew there's a vertical and horizontal launch uh, uh, dynamic in Cornwall. Um, we think horizontal is really almost a bit cooler than vertical. We think this this is the new way. Obviously, um, you look at some of this, the activity in America and this what the new commercialization space, the Elon Musk, the Jeff Bezos world of this world. Some have gone the the vertical route, uh, like Elon Musk and, and his and his SpaceX. Others have gone um, towards horizontal, like Richard Branson, looking at both both satellite launch uh, horizontally, but also human space flights. And you've got some Asian machines like Strata Launcher out of the US as well. Um, you know, looking at uh, horizontal launch as well, and that's a as a bespoke uh, aircraft. So we think it's quite exciting the the horizontal launch aspect, and pretty cool for for the UK because. Where Cornwall's placed, it's a really good location to get into the North Atlantic uh, to access some very specific launch sites uh, uh, remotely. Um, so, yeah, we're pretty excited about it. And we think it's a little bit more longer term. And some of the technology that might kind of come out of it regarding sort of supersonic aircraft or hypersonic aircraft, mm. out of those sort of technology strands are really, really good. 
So I was going to ask about the yeah the supersonic and the hypersonic and possibly uh, SSTO style uh, aircraft. Is is that something you are? Is is that a long term objective of the of the spaceport? Yeah, I mean, obviously, when we announced Virgin, obviously Virgin Orbit as our partner recently, is that there's a, that what you might say there are traditional horizontal launch cabinet. That's a civilian airliner with a rocket attached to the wings. That's quite traditional in a way. But as you start to talk about other avenues of technologies, then as a spaceport, it won't only be, be about that. We're having active discussions about how we might return a system from orbit. So there are existing orbital systems in the world, uh, and they may need uh, a base to return a payload or, 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 or an emergency uh, return. Because obviously we used to be, yeah, a long time ago, uh, an emergency shuttle uh, location for shuttle return at, at Newquay. So, and again, that might well be something we look at. So it's not only about that, those things. Obviously, we're really keen to look at uh, human space time as well. You yep. know, that's a, that's a key strand for us. Uh, that's, a, that's quite a challenge in the UK. You operating those systems in UK airspace is pretty challenging, but we think we can do that in due course. Um, so all those things start to come, come, come to you in the end. We are having... Uh, discussions about propulsion technologies and propulsion testing. So I think horizontal with an airport allows you to access those, those technologies. Clearly, uh, I would say this, wouldn't I? Yeah. With a vertical launch pad in northern Scotland, you can't you can't do that stuff. They can do really exciting stuff with vertical launch rockets, but can't do the sort of all the things around things that have wings, things that are going right. to return to you. Yeah. So if, if for example, Reaction Engines built a, a, a precursor to Skylon, it, that would be the kind of thing that would be flying out of Newquay. Yeah, and, and we really love that. I mean, we, we, the, we sort of reusable orbital aircraft are probably our ultimate aim. You know, that's yeah. where we want to go to. That's where the technology leads you. So um, even, uh, you know, you look at shuttle launch in the US, they're already talking about having a, a, an orbital system being carried by their, their passenger aircraft. And I'm sure if you look to Virgin Orbit's uh, future uh, yeah. sort of... Uh, uh, the dark ops room, yeah. they'll be looking at that sort of thing as well. So it's it's where that technology leads you in terms of launch. So a system that, that returns from space to our, to either takes off from our airport and goes to space and then returns, or even something coming back from space and returns to the airport are pretty cool. I yeah. think that's cool. No, absolutely. So uh, tell us a little bit more about your partnership with Virgin Orbit then. How, how, did, that, how did that come about and how long has that been in the pipeline and... Well, yes, take us from the beginning. Oh, no, for the bigger version, we're now part of the Virgin family, so perhaps I can go, I can now talk about that opening, which yeah. is nice, obviously I post our announcement at Farnborough. So we uh, probably had a well over two years discussions with, with the company. Uh, we were party to a, to, to a proposition to government, to work with government to produce a space support with Virgin, and uh, that's where our relationship started. And we, as I, we looked firstly at bringing Virgin Galactic System to the UK, uh, and that's still what we wish to, 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 to bring in due course. So we are very keen on human space flight and having that ambition. We think the UK should be ambitious about having a human space flight dynamic, particularly horizontally. I think that's really exciting. And to be the first flight in Europe to have that sort of to aspect uh, is really good. So um, obviously we, we, we've been looking at developing that. And actually, we've been through some hard times with Virgin. We, we went through the, the tragedy action in Mojave with the Virgin Galactic System, and but they still wish to... Uh, move that forward and move, move our discussions forward. And, uh, you know, we came to uh, a conclusion probably maybe about a year or so ago, you expect us to be early in that, that we needed really to get an anchor, uh, a first move, a first market mover operator at our spaceport. There are many spaceports around the world that don't have operators. So it was critical for us to, to make sure we got that relationship right with Virgin and brought and actually made a decision to, to, to concentrate on having 
one initial operator, because that's key. Yeah. It's, you, you, you can't have a build it and he will come approach with spaceports in our view. Yeah. I can't, uh, with our partners at like the local enterprise partnership with Cornwall Council, I can't sell that as an investable proposition. So uh, we made a conscious decision. Let's, let's get the best operator. Uh, and that best operator chose us as the best location in the UK. And that's quite a, that gives obviously clearly a lot of uh, reassurance to perceive a spaceport because, you know, we, we are the best, not only the best place to, uh, um, from what we believe is the best place to play, but the industry, one of the, yeah. the one of the only uh, early mover players in horizontal launch has chosen us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing that that I did notice in the press release of after after you came out as as this horizontal launch facility and being a spaceport, there was a few detractors sort of saying that that spaceports in general, say the ones that are, the commercial ones that have opened up in America, for example haven't really seen much space flight yet and, and that th- th- it hasn't taken off and they were sort of giving like very good examples of, of the ones dotted around America. Is that something that's a worry or do you think that, they're, that, that the market is, is poised to, to take off, literally, obviously? I think that's a very important point. I think um, it is just about that. I don't think we may even recognise how, how, how important the moment we're at with, with, with launch. Uh, we've we've been looking at Elon Musk and SpaceX and his Falcon Heavy and his Tesla in space and it's that's amazing stuff. But you look at some of the horizontal launch players as well. Um, they've moved on significantly and they've maybe keep that a little bit quiet. Um, you know, uh, exciting with Virgin Galactic having another power test most recently in America, and that seems great trajectory towards launch. And that wasn't the case four or five years ago. And a lot of players have come and gone as well in the in the period. Well, I've been involved. I've been involved in space for four or five years. We've lost some players out of that. Mm. Um, uh, Xcor, were, were, when we first um, were, got involved with Spaceport, Xcor were one of the touted, one of the potential first prime movers. Fortunately, they, that hasn't happened, and they've and they've mm. fallen by the wayside. Um, and there's one or two other. I think space stations were another another carried system, but more have come in than than have been lost. Yeah. Um, and if you look at Virgin Orbit, Strata Launcher, and some other ones from the US at the moment, Dream Chaser, for example, a Sierra Nevada corporation system, that's not going to launch over us because it's vertical, but it might return to us. Right. So those are the sort of things. More and more dynamics come into the marketplace. So I think that I don't think we probably recognised. Um, uh, I think Brian Cox did an amazing program, the 21st Century Race for Space, I think it was right. called, and he said he said at the end that we're on the we are we on the cusp of a significant change of our sort of. Uh, uh, move away from the Earth, particularly around human spaceflight. So I think we are on, on that moment, and that's right. why we were encouraged to do that. Four years ago, it was a very different dynamic. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's really encouraging. I mean, the the other thing is, yeah, this prolif- proliferation of the small satellite launch market. So you've got, you know, Electron and, 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 and a whole heap of things that have just come in, including, obviously, the Scottish spaceport as well. And there's lots and lots and lots of companies building small satellite launches. Is the small satellite market going to be big enough to sustain it? And the one thing that <laughs> the one thing that I, I do ask the question a lot is, is I know it's a lot cheaper to launch on a bigger rocket and it brings the price right down, but you don't have a kind of bespoke launch. Is the market there to sort of pay more for these bespoke launches? Is that, um, and what, why is that? when it's quite, you know, considerably more expensive for a bespoke launch. 
it's com- as you probably expect. It's a, it's very complex, and it's and it and we're obviously very reliant on Virgin Orbit in terms of the marketplace and the payload. But we're working pretty hard now. We um, are working with colleagues in the Catapults and the, and the Satellite uh, and Innovate UK to build that market because part of our piece is to build that market in the UK. I I don't think all the evidence shows you that demand will be there, hmm. so that people want satellites to do things. If that's the right sense. Have we got the right people to make enough satellites to do those things? I don't think we have. And I think the market will catch up. So we're working pretty hard and we work talk a lot around um, you if we have a, if we have a launch system operating in the UK, we need to change buying buying choices. So you have satellite manufacturers or providers that are looking for launch. They may have those buying choices set out well in advance. So we may need to change those. If we're seriously talking about a launch in 2020, mm-hmm. which we are. Um, you know, second quarter 2020, we think we can do. So next next Farnborough Air Show, mm. we want to go back to Farnborough without having done a launch in the UK. We, we think it's pretty exciting. Yeah, we think we can do that. <laughs> um, regulation aside, I might come back to regulation yeah. and what that. What, what are the risks of not doing that? So um, we do need to work hard to build that market case, particularly so the UK can capture that market as much as other uh, other countries around the world. So. Yes, there are a lot of small launches. There aren't many small launches that are going towards launch. There's a huge list of 30 or 40 small launches mm-hmm. in development, but only four or five of those, uh, by, all, by, by the people who know these sort of things, are sort of saying that they will be in probably operation in the next four years. Right. So there aren't so many as it seems. Um, and there are some good ones. Rocket Labs, Electron, yeah. uh, system obviously launched now in New Zealand. And rumoured to be linked to um, Scotland, but I'm not yeah. sure that's been confirmed yet. Yeah. Um, so there are some good launches, but they're, they are quite small. Obviously, Virgin Orbit is a, is a little bit on the larger side of the mm. small launcher family, if that's the right, right. term, technically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Virgin Orbit's gross payload is, what, 500 kilograms, about 300, 350 net, depending on what, what orbit you want. So it is slightly larger than some of the other smaller systems around. Mm. So if you're looking at the... Out of Farnborough, we sort of now know what the launcher market in the UK is going to be. So we've got uh, Lockheed Martin and Orbex in Scotland. Um, and both of their payloads are below 200 kilograms, I believe, uh, or somewhat less. Depends what Lockheed yeah. actually proposed in the end. And we've got Virgin Orbit operating out of Newquay. So that's, a, that's, that's the given. There's a couple of others like we're working with Skyora, a vertical launch company. They're coming down to us to, to test with us initially, but they will, they will eventually go to Scotland for launch. So we sort of know who those are going to be and, and the number of launches are going to be because we know now the frequency. Yeah. So you now know, you now got your total, you've got your total market piece in yeah. the UK. So is the capacity in the UK to, to actually fill those payloads in the next three, four, five, ten years? Uh, well, we need to work hard to make sure that, that that's not leaked out of the UK and it's retained. So we're doing that at the moment, working with that. And we hope to work with Lockheed Martin in Scotland to make sure that works for the UK. Um, every billion pounds you give to um, NASA, you get 10 billion back. So why is it only now we are like considering a British space launch? Well, haven't we got a rather bad fact with the UK? With the, with the only countries ever to acquire launch capability, then, not, then give up on it. So... <laughs> um, Perhaps we just delayed that and uh, yeah. back in the seventies, but I think it's incredible statistics. So, um, I, I think in terms of ho- I've always been involved with horizontal launch spaceports, uh, and the Department for Transport four and a half five years ago, uh, you know, put a proposition out that they thought there was a marketplace for launch, um, and we got the opportunity. We think the right side to do that. Um, I think the government may need to. What we we would like the government to think a little bit differently about how they do things in terms of it's really about goes that, that payload market piece. There are some early year risk 
around the payload demand in the UK. So what we'd like the UK government to do is to think about how could they support that. And if you look in America with NASA, uh, they would get, they, they in broad terms, in simplistic terms, guarantee payload. So they'll buy a certain amount of payload and therefore uh, contract with a SpaceX. So, But they can quite neatly come back in and step in and do a academic or a scientific payload or a military payload and fill that gap. So if you guarantee it, it's not not really. If you can fill it, you're not, yeah. you're not really guaranteeing it, and that's a much more difficult UK position because this is simply not the, the size of scale of market here. But we we want to move that we'd like the UK and the UK space industry to move towards where they could go to a NASA position of contracting with commercial operators to guarantee or buy payload, uh, militarily, academic, or scientifically, uh, or something they they sell otherwise. So that's something we're working on, and we hope to make progress with that. Um, but we've got it's a much smaller industry in the UK than the US, so it's, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to do that. So interesting times, I think. Um, and I think there's all, we now know we're, we're on the spaceports where we stand. We sort of know where we launches we're going to uh, where we understand, and now we're going to make sure that market uh, is sustainable. Because the critical thing we ask, we don't want to build this thing, and then we don't have we get free launches and it disappears. Oh, yeah. We want this to be long term. I think that's a really interesting point. That's something that I'd not heard of was the fact that yeah, you were actually encouraging the builders of the satellites as well. That's is is that one of the reasons why that make a British spaceport so so likable in in the fact that you build it in Britain and you doesn't you don't have to transport it very far to get it into space. <laughs> is that a factor? Uh, no, well, that's part of the factors. I mean, I, I think yeah, there's whole things around building providing different services to to, to uh, around the launch. So. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why you'd have a launch site in the UK is to tap into the UK launch manufacturing, yeah, the satellite mm. manufacturing market. Why wouldn't you be close to your market? But I think we can also attract Western Europe demand as well, because UK being well-placed um, strategically in the Atlantic um, means we've got some advantages that Europe doesn't have. So there's clearly some similar countries like Spain and Portugal. Which, mm. And we've got to have a mind to, to look at Spain and Portugal because they could easily be take our market advantage. We, yeah. we, we want to capture a bit of market advantage here. So we think if we get first mover advantage and holes on launch space board, that might, that might stop others grasping that or progressing their plans in the same way. Yeah. Uh, we need to be competitive, though, and affordable for launches. We can't have this, um, forgive me, but we can't have a uh, maybe a Spaceport America, which was a bespoke system, but... We can't we can't afford in a way a two hundred million dollar facility because that we need a payback on that. Yeah. So and we don't think we need that for satellite launch. So and we think we need very little. We don't we, we don't very little for the top. Yeah. This that's the beauty of it. We want to use our airport really efficiently. So bring a system in and be able to, be able to launch on there. So um you know we need to be very aware that other players in Europe will will look at the UK and see whether they can have a piece of that action. I think to some extent, some countries simply won't be able to do that because these things are very difficult to overfly. Yeah. So if you're in a landlocked European country, you're not going to be a horizontal launch nation, I don't believe. The, mm. this, the, the prob- there'll be too many problems involved with that. And also, even getting close to other countries' territories is going to, is going to be challenging. So um, you know, there are countries well-placed, like Spain and Portugal, could easily look at that. But I think important for us in the marketplace is we have regulatory advantage in the UK. Cause so we had the Space Industry Bill that went through Parliament... Um, this year that gives us a huge advantage of course you can catch up but we shouldn't treat that very lightly the uk have done that very quickly yeah. to be fair to be fair uh through challenging times through parliament so we were we were pretty amazed and the industry was uh saw that as really a statement of intent from the uk look we're going to do this we're going to yeah. put the legislation in place we have the secondary legislation through next year hopefully and i think that will be, give us considerable advantage uh, in europe there's no other place in europe can do that 
at the moment. So there may be ideas around from Italy or from Spain to do a space board, but they've got to get the regulation in place first and the law. You can't do it without the legal right to do it. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, that's a good thing. So I always, as a, a sort of a, a promoter of a site, yeah. I, 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 it's good to have market advantage as my proposition. Yeah. So and that's pretty much what we're about. And that's already... So a lot of interest from the US investor wise. So they're looking at the UK saying, are they serious about this? And actually don't underestimate how a piece of law can, can show some intent. With Virgin Orbit, are you tied to Virgin Orbit or would you look at other systems like Strata Launch launching out of Nuki? We have exclusive rights with, with Virgin for, for, you know, in the UK, so we know where they're, where they're UK base. Hmm. Uh, they know that in order to make the spaceport, they, want, they also want an affordable spaceport. Yeah. They're, they're light on infrastructure, so they want to go to a spaceport, launch satellites and not have a hundred million pound cost to do that. Yeah. They want to go around the world to pick up individual launch sites in, in the world, maybe have a dozen or so launch sites in due course, so maybe four or five initially. So Eastern, Western Seaboard, the US, Pacific and uh, Europe and maybe Middle East. So they'll be picking up those particular locations where they can where they can do that. And they don't want a big on cost. Yeah. They want to go in, launch a satellite in a cost-effective manner and then depart because the customers are going to end up having to pay for that. So we're pretty comfortable with that relationship, but they also know that in order to make it affordable, we can bring others in. So we need revenue as a spaceport. There are prime, there yeah. are prime mover, yeah. there are, we're, we're going to make sure we look after Virgin and make sure we don't bring competitors in yeah. that are going to, going to destroy their market. So we know we've got a special relationship with uh, with Virgin uh, over the years, part of the Virgin family, but we will bring others in. They know that. So we're looking at other systems um, and technologies from orbit. So I've mentioned orbital systems. We're already in discussions yeah. around systems that might return to us. And we're starting to have exciting conversations about yeah. what we do with the aircraft that's come back from space, which is really yeah. quite incredible. You know, we're looking at how we treat that aircraft, how we operate it, and then return it uh, to, to back back into that. We're looking at other vertical launch technologies. Balloon yeah. was one of them, which we're considering, uh, which will act more like an aircraft in airspace terms. Yeah. So it's not a traditional vertical launch. It, it will act, it will launch yeah. vertically, but will more likely be treated like an aircraft from an airport than a than a vertical launch rocket in regulation terms. Yeah. We're yet to see that, but there's some really exciting things around there. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's some other other human spaceflight systems in the world that we're looking at. You mentioned shuttle launcher. That's a big aircraft. Yeah. So. Um, we'd have to be, think very carefully of, of strata launcher operating out of us. Uh, we really see how that that system develops because it yeah. is it's going to need, and, and that's why Virgin Orbit haven't gone that route yeah. because strata launcher is a very very large aircraft, and that's an obvious statement over 100 meter wingspan. Yeah. The track of the aircraft, the two fuselages are over over 45 meters wide, so that has some, and that will be we could not operate that aircraft out of our airport today. Right. Um, but we will adapt to our airport in the future. So that, if that if that aircraft develops, and I'm sure through testing, it will might need. It actually won't need less width, but it might need. Le- we can't even operate to try to launch for length reasons. It needs a longer yeah. runway than we've got. So, but those systems will develop, and the, and the and the and the technology will develop over time. So, and the regulations will change about what you need to operate it. So, more and more systems will be hopefully better come to us. But it might be that the system they launch will return to us yeah. uh, from space. Um, and that's what we're looking at at the moment, is building this sort of ecosystem of launches uh, that hopefully will make our business case work, because yeah. it is a challenge to make a spaceport work uh, commercially. That's one of the challenges that we need to, we need to look at. 
Other than a runway, what else does a spaceport actually need to function as a spaceport? Well, not not a huge amount, really. I mean, you can build grand terminals and grand grand buildings to house your aircraft, but the moment at this stage, we want to get towards a launch. So we want to get uh, our, our our prime thing is to get operational license for our spaceport and a launch, and we want to be the first launch off UK soil. We want Cornwall yeah. to be the first place that the UK. I know we've had launches from Australia and the US. Yeah. Um, uh, in, uh, but we want the first British Isles launch to be from Cornwall uh, in 2020. Am I, right we can do that. Sa- am I right in saying if you did do that in 2020, that it would be the first orbital launch from Europe, full stop? Uh, yeah, I didn't know whether... I was going to try check that stat. Yeah, really I know. Interesting I, I, one. I, I, I keep asking it, but no one quite answers it. But I think it is. I can't there's been a lot of suborbital stuff. Lots of suborbitals. From... Um, and sort of other stuff's going on. But I was, I, I've not been able to pin that fact down because I didn't know something had been done yeah. from the north. Yeah. Um, so... Um, Obviously, you've got to scout military activity yeah. as well and stuff like that. So I didn't know whether Norway or Sweden had done something for them, but I didn't. I wasn't entirely sure because yeah. um, there is space for Sweden. I know they have plans for vertical, yeah. and I wasn't sure that something had been done from from, from Northern Europe, uh, polar in the past. Yeah. There's a stat I wanted to go out. I don't. I like that sort of stats. So. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm going to do a bit more digging. You in do that a, one because you I, find that one out. Let me know. I, yeah, I think it is. I think it is, but I still quite haven't, I haven't found the definitive because I've never seen it in print whenever they're talking about launch and I think yeah I'm going to try and find that it's quite it's quite difficult to find out about British launches yeah. now, the, the, the launch our last launch was from Romero we've done quite a lot with the NASA in the US but um, we, I think the aerial program was yeah. the reason I know my boat's called aerial so, oh, no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to look at aerial it's a space link boat uh, boat name but uh, we, we did launch some satellites back in the 60s 70s from yeah. the US I know we did and then obviously Woomera was with when the program was stopped in in in, in Australia. So we want Cornwall to be the first launch. And we can do that. We're we're lot we don't need much infrastructure. So what do we need? Um we need to operate this large aircraft, Boeing 747. We're we're capable of doing that. Yeah. We need to uh, basic handling of the fuel. Uh, but it's not well, I call it that exotic. It's not, it's not a LOX kerosene mix or a mm. rocket propellant mix. So that's not um uh, too difficult to handle. We need a simple integration facility. We probably need a basic cleaning facility so we can integrate the satellites into the in, into the rocket and some kit to get to, to make sure we handle the rocket. So get this very large rocket from Virgin Orbit. And you see pictures of it in the US, amazingly large. Yeah. Um, and we need ability to get that on the, or safely onto the aircraft and then launch it from there. So um, regulation aside, so the bits of things we need about regulation. So what's a, what, how are they going to ask us to treat the aircraft? i.e. fire cover and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and that's but that's behind the scenes stuff. So and not difficult. The regulation tends to be you do this and you jump. Yeah. So uh, we want to test that because we want to make sure that the regulation is proportionate so we can keep the affordability thing driving. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's pretty key for us uh, is uh, keep the cost down. Uh, not to be cheap, but keep the cost down so we can but don't have to pass that cost onto the initial operator. So we've got to make sure that the UK is competitive. If yeah. it's not, they'll go. The people will go elsewhere. Uh, this is a global marketplace. So, uh, in a post-Brexit world, we're going to make sure we're we're bang on with the costs down. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to mention Brexit, but does Brexit actually give us a little bit of an advantage when it comes to attracting um, trade from around the world for our launch system that maybe Portugal and Spain won't have, or is that too early to tell? <laughs> I, I think it's really interesting. I could, I mean, I'm a marketeer, so I'm going to see the, the positive opportunity out of Brexit yeah. rather than the, the negative. And I, I generally, in the field we're in, so space and spaceports, all we do get a lot of positive. Uh, so we were in Colorado at the Space Symposium uh, a few months ago, and a lot of positivity from the US. Uh, the, 
why wouldn't the UK be the first first step out of the US, the most natural, easiest first step from the US uh, for their technology? And the Trump administration, um, Vice President Pence was at, at, the, at, at that symposium, shows the importance of space to the US. Mm. Um, and uh, he was talking about the, the, the US for growth and jobs in the US. They need their technology to be global. So I think that's a, that, that's a, that's a pos, really positive statement from my point of view. Um, I would say a positive uh, Brexit. Um, you know, we need trade deals, but we need the bilaterals between the US government and, and the UK. That might be easier in the UK and US alone rather than US, UK and Europe. Uh, yeah. Time will tell. Um, I think we need, tra- we, need a, we, need a, we need the Brexit to be on a proper footing. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, that might lead, make the US investors uh, nervous. So we need a, we need a, a good Brexit, I'll put it in just those terms, uh, and then we could, then we can have sensible conversations with the US about uh, sort of trade deals and, and bilateral agreements, technology uh, agreements from the US to the UK, and then we're big set. So definitely a positive, and the US generally is seeing it as a positive opportunity to invest in the UK, uh, maybe as an easier option than investing in Europe. There's time will tell. Yeah, but the, my my last question then really is about what what's the relationship that Spaceport Cornwall will have with ESA. <laughs> or is there one? Um, well, not I mean, in broad terms. Not at the moment. We're, we're, we're predominantly dealing with the UK Space Agency. Um, we're starting to have inroads into ESA funding routes. Into oh, some of our operators are. Hmm. So some of the operators we're dealing with have strong relationship and are being funded by ESA for development. We've got one company called Orbital Access, which I haven't mentioned yet. British, hmm. a British company who are partnering with things like Reaction Engines and one or two others. They've got an orbital-based system, and they're already looking some sort of. They've got some pathfinding funding from the ESA, looking at their orbital system. So um, not directly, but we hoping we, we we're hoping as the next stage when we get towards operations. Uh, obviously, they will have involvement with the regulation of the mm. orbital aspects. Yeah. But a lot of that interaction currently is with our operators, not not us directly. But that, I think that would change uh, dramatically. We've had quite a lot of talking about propulsion testing because um, we're starting some propulsion testing later this year. We started that with Bloodhound, Bloodhound supersonic car, yeah. um, when they came to the airport about a year ago. So and they did some rocket testing with us, and they'll be back with us next year. But they're partnering with, with Skyora to do that. So Skyora, a vertical launch company, that's quite cool. We hope this. We do some quite cool things at the airport around supersonic cars and spaceships and stuff like that. So that's yeah, good. yeah, that is really cool. Yeah. If in 2020 and the interplanetary podcast come down for the first launch, what will we expect to see? What kind of <laughs> you know? And, and I was what's it going to be like? I was picking up a theme for one of your other podcasts where you talked about well, it's going to be a bit boring, isn't it? <laughs> um, we don't. We don't think so. I mean. The beauty of horizontal launch is this aircraft will take off from us quite casually in a way, run you know, day-to-day stuff, and that's the point, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll launch remotely. Right. So it will fly away from us three or 400 nautical miles west of us, west of Ireland, and then do its launch at 40,000 feet. So that's not clearly going to be visible from our airport. There are some good things around safety because we're taking the launch a long way from away from people, which is, good, I think, a good thing. Mm. Environmentally, so all the, all the stuff you're doing regarding propulsion is done at an altitude, so uh, it's cleaner. We've got to work on the, on the clean bit, but we, 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 we like that. But I still think a Boeing 747 taking off from uh, the airport uh, with a rocket attached to its wing is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and you will be able to see it. Trust me, I'll be there. Um, <laughs> and, of course, you'll be able to see it. I, I challenge people to go and see... The vertical launch is going to be really yeah. challenging to get to, and to visual, you, the, the the safety area around it will be quite significant. So, um, I think we'll be get really be able to get really close 
Yeah. You know, you better go up to the Boeing 747 and see it. You might better go and touch the rocket and stuff like that. That's quite cool. So a bit of contact with the launch vehicle. And these days with, with technology, we'll be able to get that because we've got the the carrier aircraft, the Boeing 747, with all its telemetry and data on it, well, you'll be able to see that launch from that aircraft. So we've beamed that back to Yuki. So yeah. you see the whole sort of journey uh, to space, we hope, uh, for, for, from our site. So I think it's going to be, the Boeing 747 is a pretty large aircraft. So yeah. hopefully we'll tell. So the, so the general plan is we, we would like to get to 20 to early, we think we, we could do it quarter one. Regulation, if it allows us, so first quarter, that's kind of the quarter in, as in, in, in 2020, we can do it. We probably won't do it then because of weather. So what we'll probably do is look at um, maybe a May, June, maybe a July launch 2020. And then we'll hopefully get, we'll have Cosmic Girl, the 747 in this, in this country. And then we might take her back to Farnborough in July. So we're flying to Farnborough, take her in there as our exhibit there. So that's that would be a nice plan. Oh, man, that's that, my vision. Yeah, that does sound absolutely um, brilliant. Having done the first launch <laughs> from the UK soil, we'll then take the aircraft to Farnborough and uh, have our stand on the on this Boeing seven four seven rather than the main hall at Farnborough. So rather than the model, we'll take the real aircraft. That's a lot of planning in there, but that's my vision. Uh, yeah. That's what I like to see, and that's what we're working to. Uh, and uh, you know, we've got some exciting things going on with. Uh, why, why do I do this? And we get yeah. get a, get out bed in the morning. Um, Fundamentally, uh, I'm doing it because the massive, well, we haven't talked about it much, it's about the educational mm. uh, impact from this. So we're getting massive. I get a phone call every day from a local school. Can you come and chat to our children to talk about space and launch and stuff? There's so much excitement from, from kids around this spinning like mm. a new career. How can I get into space? What GCA, yeah, what, what exams do I need to take? What, had, uh, what, what's my route to become a space engineer or an astronaut even? I love that. Because that's a great ambition, isn't it? So I'm uh, really, really keen to get involved with our educational program, get people excited about space and getting into space as a career. And the physical launch does that. And having a visual launch, mm. having this great big aircraft, Boeing 747 with Virgin Orbit on the side, with a rocket attack, bring, bring children down to, to Newquay to see this happen. And so I don't think it will be unexciting. I think a Boeing 747 is a very large aircraft. Right. Uh, so we can we'll make it exciting, don't worry. <laughs> cool, <laughs> but not too exciting. Oh, got safe. Got that, yeah. <laughs> so does, does the airport actually run like a normal airport during the day, or would it be will it be a special day when, or is just like that Boeing seven four seven will just taxi like the rest of the? Yeah, it's a really craft. good, really important, and that's one of our unique features. We working with, with actually with Virgin Galactic. This, I know you. You know when you work yeah. something really closely, you should realise these things a lot yeah. earlier. You don't always do that, so. We realised that actually Nuki were the first place ever you would have launch and schedule passenger services fully integrated. So it would be the first spaceport. There's one or two in the US proposing it, but they haven't mm. gone operating yet. Uh, I think at, at Ellington Airport um, is looking at that in the US. But all the other spaceports are either bespoke or non-operational. So the GH, what we call generation Aviation Airport. So yeah. Mojave is probably the most, Mojave Air and Spaceport is probably the most successful spaceport on the planet, full stop. It's got two or three operators out of there. Um, and actually doing some launches at the moment. Yeah. So, but that's a general aviation airport. There's no, there's no, there's no civilian airliners going out. So, Newquay will be the first place you can, uh, you know, go into the terminal one day, fly to space, and next day, um, you know, perhaps fly to London on, on our own. So, and we believe we'll be the first airport on the planet to do that. Yeah. So again, one of those stats proved me wrong with that. One. Yeah, yeah. But, but we, we think we're 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 dead on there. So that's quite interesting. Integrating launch and passengers. Uh, it's quite an interesting thing, but we think it's, it's very doable and we can do it. Will you be the first Virgin Orbit launch? Or will there be a couple uh, no, um No, that would, that would happen in the US. Uh, there is no doubt about that. Um, I think they're looking at some uh, some uh, carried test later in the year. They've just got their FAA licence to do that. So we certainly won't be the first. We hope to be the first outside of the US, we hope, 
Um, and we think we're pretty much on, on course to do that. So we were the first step out of the US for Virgin Orbit uh, to do their first launch at, at, away from US soil. Of course, they don't really do the launch of US soil. It's yeah. all from all, all overseas. Um, so, um, yeah, 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 we're pretty excited about all that sort of stuff. That's good. So on a confidence level for 2020, any time in 2020, where are you at with... Uh, your confidence for a launch as um, a percentage. There's a lot in there uh, <laughs> to go potentially wrong. Yeah. I'll call it in those terms. And the biggest question for me is regulation. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, with an airport that can operate a Boeing 747 with a few tweaks, that's that's all doable. Um, we need we need some help from government uh, in terms of things like export controls and licensing. That's the so that's a, sort of one of the bigger risks. But we need regulation. If we can't operate that system legally and safely in the UK, and the regulator is happy with that, and the regulator is DFT, yeah. and we're really hopeful the team in DFT who are really good at this sort of stuff and have progressed the space engine bill really quickly, that is my big risk. That's not in my control. You know, when you're managing risks, you want them to be in your control. Um, we have an we have an operator license also to sort out, and we need to sort out how the launch range is going to work as well. So there's some quite 60-40 in favour positive that we can achieve that. I'm not going to say 100% because I think they'll be yeah. uh, underestimating the risks involved with that. But there's no reason why we can't do that. If there's a will yeah. in the UK to do it, uh, why why wouldn't we? And I, I wish my, my, my fellow colleagues in Scotland the best as well uh, because I think they've got – whether they can do it so quick, as quickly as we can, uh, we think the first one is really important for our point of view to get that licence in place. Uh, they've got a different trajectory. They've got a different type of project working mm. in much, in much deeper partnership with Lockheed Martin. Uh, well, horizontal is different. Um, you know, you are more of an airport where airlines turn up or space lines turn up to yeah. you in a way. Uh, or vertical launch, you've probably got a dedicated launch pad and you've got yeah. the dedicated systems and launching systems. So, mm. uh, yeah, uh, 60-40. Is that too negative? No, no, sixty forty sounds <laughs> slightly. I was, I was hoping you'd go seventy thirty, but sixty forty, I'll take. I hundred percent think we can do it in in the in, in a period. I yeah. mean, I think all this is absolutely doable, uh, depending on the commerciality of it. So, so it goes up dramatically to twenty one, twenty two, and all. But to, to twenty twenty one, we always plan twenty twenty one as as the, as the first launch, and we're planning three launches in twenty twenty one. I'm I'm, a, I'm pretty hundred percent certain we can do that. Right. So I'm pretty, pretty, oh, okay. Pretty, so the 2021 will just be the icing on the cake, yeah. but that's a 64. And, and the 64 oh, is, but, and, the, and, and the 40% negative is is a, is a two inch for me is about the, the technology export issues from the US that needs to be. It's a time issue probably, um, and the other issue about regulation. And that's not only critical on the UK government. We're, we're we're pretty dependent about some twin tracking being done. So when the regulation is going through Parliament, can we have an early license application? Can we have a temporary license? To operate the system and the spaceport just for one launch. Yeah, can be a one launch ticket, for example. Yeah. I don't know. Right, those be those things will be discussed. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of times manned space flight. Is the Virgin Galactic thinking of going out of, uh, of out of Newquay, or is it, or or is that something that's too far down the down the line? Um, we're part of the part of the Virgin family, so we are having still having discussions with Galactic uh, alongside Virgin Orbit. Um, we started our predominantly our discussion about Virgin Galactic, so we know we're a system really well. Um, there are some challenges to doing human space in the UK. Go back to that regulation issue. Yeah. Give it time. We've got the regulation pushed through Parliament through next year. We'll know where we stand, what we have to do to operate that system, and particularly protect protect the interests of the people on it, the passengers or the mm. people taking the experience. Um, it's also quite a costly system to, in, to, to manufacture with those risks in place. So that cost is fine commercially if you know you can operate. But 
am I going to press the button today on building a brand new hot human space that's in the UK where any knowledge of the regulation in place to be able to do that? Probably not. <laughs> so what I think you need to do, um, and that's why the Virgin Orbit is more comfortable because we're bringing the US aircraft to us initially. Yeah. So we don't have to buy an aircraft and modify it, which is quite a big, big thing yeah. to do. Um, let's get the regulation through, through next year. Um, look at how that affects us in our operations, what type of aircraft we may need to build in the UK, and then let's look at human space that comes to the UK. But we, we are, one of our big things is we, is we think the UK should have a very ambitious view on human space flight. Um, uh, I think we can only do that horizontally. I don't think we're going to have a vertical launch site that can do human space flight. I don't think that's on the proposition for Scotland either. Yeah. So we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Aranuki, so let's not lose that ambition. So um, we will pick up pick up those discussions. We're going to concentrate on getting that first launch uh, for Morbit, but we're going to keep those discussions going with human spaceflight. And there are other players as well we're talking to who yeah. are considering uh, UK for human spaceflight programs. Um, yeah. Different technologies, um, but they see Nuki is the best place to do that. I mean, you know, you, I think you know Nuki quite yeah. well. I mean, we've never we never really talk about weather and and, yeah. and tourism infrastructure very often because. It's a given. Yeah, we got we have got the best tourism infrastructure in the UK. I might get shot for that, but <laughs> um, in terms of the serving of the human spaceflight person, yeah. uh, you know, in terms of the restaurants, the hotels, the and some of the houses that we got that can accommodate these people, um, you know, we've got the best infrastructure in terms of that. You know, we've got some great four or five star hotels. We've got some great uh, personal residences people can rent. You know, con- private concierge. Mm. We have looked at that quite a lot of detail. What's the package we can put round a four or five day human space flight experience? Uh, and Cornwall's got it got it in spades. So yeah. we 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 know we can do that really really easily. Uh, our weather's also uh, some of the best in the UK, but relatively again we don't talk about weather much because frankly we're in the UK <laughs> and we're definitely not the same weather as New Mexico. Yeah. So um, it's better. I mean, New Mexico is presumably. Oh, Impressive heat, or <laughs> well, it's, it's similar every day, uh, broadly. So, um, I mean, we, we sort of things we when we started space, but yeah. we looked at those things like, oh, are we the best weather in the UK? Material, you know, proportionate, we've got the same sort of weather to Glasgow or Northern Scotland, but it's certainly a bit better here, uh, yeah. generally. So, we don't tend to talk about that, but that sort of all those things more likely come into human space like uh, uh, dynamic really than, than satellite launch. And with the launch, with satellite launch. In Cornwall, if it if it's cloudy, not the cloud effect, but if it's bad weather today, it's probably not going to be bad weather tomorrow. So you're not going to move that system. You yeah. know, you're not going to move that system between here and here in Scotland to do a launch because you just wait until the next day because it it will be better tomorrow probably. Yeah. So our weather's pretty good. Um, the frequency launches are not much because we're not looking at you know sixty or seventy a year. One day maybe, but yeah. in the early years, a dozen maybe. So yeah, but I mean, a, I mean a, yeah, I mean a dozen's quite a lot of launches. Uh, you know. Yeah, in the UK, we're what we're looking at. So if, if um, Lockheed, Lockheed do say what they're going to do and Orbex and ourselves, she's all talking about perhaps 20 or 30 launches from the UK a year. That's quite a lot Yeah, from a zero start. From a zero start. Yeah, um, I mean, that was one really interesting thing that um, Alan Bond said on one of our podcasts was that one of the one of the pluses of abandoning our space program is that we've got a clean slate to work from and that that that, that allows we, we haven't got any players to to pander to and, and anything like that is is that something that you've actually found quite easy in your position presumably that's quite good because you're just starting from a standing start 
Yeah, no, it's, 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 yes, it is. It's possible. There are some challenges in there as well. So you need you need to people to recognise the opportunity that sits there in, in in the supply chain. A lot of people do, uh, and I think some of the challenges in the marketplace is a lot of a lot of people have geared up to launch and be able to engage with the launch providers, and it has taken a little bit longer than we'd all expected to get where we are today. So there is a there is an issue there, but no, the opportunity for UK is massive. Um, Rarely in economic development do you get that 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 big gap yeah. that you can easily fill. I mean, um, a lot of people are concerned about the the, the stage of the technology technology yeah. development in the US. So looking at Virgin Orbit, perhaps I might sit in a in a, in a meeting room in this building at New Kennedy Hall and say, well, it's not operational commercial yet. No, it's not. But because, but that's the exciting thing because we can capture all the all the all the supply chain gap. If you wait till it gets commercialised and then bring it in when it's lower risk, we're not going to have the opportunity, are you? Others would have taken that would have taken that gap. So that's to be on the the first stage of where the technology is not in. It's still in R and D, yeah. uh, still in proof of concept. That's when you need to get involved, and then you can get all the all the all the economic benefit. Um, you know, other industries have told you, be like wind power. You know, yeah. you need to be there. At the start of that journey, not jump along halfway along. So hopefully Cornwall and Cornwall Council and others have been brave to say, no, we're going to have a go at this. We'll be ambitious. Um, we're going to go in you know, really early and, and capture it. Thank you very much for spending the time and talking no, to us. No, no, uh, it's, it's always always a pleasure. It's really exciting times for us. So Yeah, no, it's it's, it's hugely exciting. I mean, I, I, when, it, when it was first announced that it was Virgin Orbit, it was like... There we oh, go. Uh, very exciting. That, awesome stuff. Um, that uh, we might be able to go and see a space launch from Britain in the next couple of years. How cool that is that? That is just going to be the best time. I mean, Matt, can you imagine our little faces at a British launch? I, I, I know. Ridiculous. Hey, Jamie, yeah. do you know what I found out today? What? My local newspaper came through the door yesterday, and Helen the Sharman... The Star? No, it's called The Good Life. I suppose in uh, the is fact it? that uh, yeah, it's actually called do the good do life. Did 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 because of course the good life was set in Surbiton. And do you know who used to live in Surbiton when she flew to space? Who? Helen Sharman. What? We need to get Helen on the on the show. It has to happen. It's fate, Matt. It's fate. It does. We need to start with the last person in space and finish with the first person in space from Britain. Oh, we have to do done. that. We we got to do that. Do you want to hear my space fact? It's a, it was I rushed this one, but I now, know that I you like it. I don't care that you rushed it, Matt, because you know I'm excited about this. <laughs> it's a word that has fueled my imagination uh, for a long time. I, I even bought a book on it, Matt. Do you remember that time? What you bought a book on panspermia? Yeah, big time. Wow, I bought a book on it and. Um, and then after a while, I, I sort of hid that book um, because I was worried that I wouldn't meet a girl. Good, have, good for you. And have relations. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, pan, but hey, pans, Matt, but, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's, 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 yeah, let's not talk about that. Let's have space fact of the week. Yes. So a paper has just come out by Aiden Ginsberg, Manav, Manasvi Lingam and Ab- Abraham Loeb. Uh, uh, from the uh, Harvard University in Cambridge, mm. Massachusetts, um, from the Institute of Theory and Computation, um, about galactic panspermia. Oof. Now, I mean, people have been talking about, first of all, that, that within our own solar system, that if you had 
you know, rocks being flung up into the air from Mars over to Earth, uh-huh. and maybe it could carry bacteria and viruses and things like that over. And, you know, I, I, I think that's totally feasible. Um, but uh, then they were saying, uh, obviously, we had uh, Robert Zubrin on talking about how it could go from star system to star system. Yeah. Now, these guys have worked out that you could have galactic panspermia. Jeez. Uh, and it's all to do with the velocities that you can get. Remember last week or the week before, we talked about Gaia discovering stars that had been flung mm. out of their galaxies and and were sort of galaxial uh, interlopers. Yes. Well, it, well, why not other objects? Like you could have, like say, say the whole of Enceladus was somehow uh, flung out of the solar system, made its way to the center of the galaxy where the black the, where the, whereas where the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy the tidal uh, forces managed to fling the whole of enceladus out of the galaxy towards another galaxy carrying all the life and bacteria with it to Just to seed insane. to seed another galaxy Matt, how um how rare is it that you would get rocks and matter from other galaxies entering into another galaxy. Well, we we just don't know. Actually, I think no. it's really really hard to work out, but it certainly seems feasible, doesn't it? You certainly get if yeah. you get you well we've seen Hamuamua is a rock from another from another solar system and that's obviously being caused by it being ejected uh, via a star. Mm. But to be ejected by a supermassive black hole would obviously mean that you could get to these uh, kind of speeds that would allow you to travel from galaxy to galaxy. So I don't see why not you could that you could get large or even small objects flung out of the galaxy towards other galaxies. And, and if that Gaia, that if that Gaia um, paper but I turns out to be right, could leave a black hole once it was in it. No, you couldn't. You. Uh, <laughs> Once you're past the event horizon, absolutely correct. But you can certainly head towards a black hole. And just like comets that come into the solar system, a comet can fly around the sun and be flung out, never to be seen again. Um, But it can come in and then be trapped by the sun's uh, gravitational well and be trapped in orbit, like a lot of comets are trapped in orbit, periodical comets. Uh, or you can have a comet that comes in and crashes directly into the sun or or is ripped apart by its tidal forces. But, yeah, no, most objects falling towards a black hole won't actually fall directly in it unless that, that was their path. They would be either captured into orbit or flung out at vast speeds, at very, very great speeds, particularly a supermassive black hole because you would have been flung towards it at incredible velocities. Matt, so that's how, that's how it works. It's very early in the day to have my head explode, but it's exploding. Yeah. So how cool is that? Super cool. I love it. I'd like to big up panspermia. Just saying. You're bigging up panspermia. I'm uh, I'm always slightly cautious with panspermia. It's one of those things that, that falls very close to the edge of pseudoscience. But Oh, Matt, just... <sighs> Throw away your caution and come and dive in. I can't. I can't throw away caution. The water's beautiful. You must always follow the truth, no matter where it leads, Jamie. No matter where it leads. If the truth is that panspermia doesn't exist, then I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that too. But Matt, Mm -hmm. talking of the truth, I'd like to say 
a big thank you mm-hmm. to our patrons and our listeners and our listeners. Imagine listening to us, Matt. Imagine listening to us every week. Mm-hmm. That's that's hard work, isn't it? <laughs> Particularly this. I mean, week. they sh- they deserve a medal, and and they shall have their medal. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something from Lord of the Rings. They shall be cast into the pit of Mordor, which is ironic because Matt does look a little bit like Treebeard, and you look a little bit like I'm a little bit Hobbit, aren't I? You I'm are part di- Hobbit. Di- <laughs> you are definitely a direct descendant from hobbit man yeah my sisters used to say i had hobbit feet because they're quite hairy which is very cruel matt it's very mean isn't it yeah but that's what sisters are for to be mean yeah that's true that's true enough my sister's going to be 50 this weekend how about that oh happy happy birthday what's your sister's name claire happy birthday claire she gets a birthday shout out on the podcast she does i'm sure she's a listener and uh, my best mate Jay as well. It's his birthday this week as well. Uh, I know Jay, and he is ace. Um, happy birthday, Jay! Um, so Matt, if I've enjoyed this podcast and I'm not a host, mm-hmm. what should I do about it? <laughs> well, even if you are a host, Jamie, you could still do the same thing. But it, it, you could go to www.interplanetary.org.uk. Planetary.org.uk. Okay, yeah, written, written that down. Next. Preferably go to iTunes and subscribe. Yeah. And if you do subscribe, please write us a nice five star review, and that would be absolutely amazing. Five star review, yeah, yeah. I I really want to do a shout out to to our new Skylon patron, Kaylee. Kaylee, Kaylee, you are a legend. Kaylee, you know what? Wherever you are right now, give yourself a little pat on the back, and I'd like you to go to a shop. Get yourself a little treat. It could be a donut, could be a nice crisp apple. I don't mind, but I want you to look after yourself today because you've earned it. And do you know what you get as a Skylon? Not only do you what? get your, your your interplanetary T-shirt of your choice, you Check. also get the mug. You get the which I think is the the best bit of merch. It is the thing when people come round to my flat, they're not worried about my original Bowie records. <laughs> they're just jealous of my interplanetary podcast mug. Someone lost my one at work. I mean, I don't know who nicked it, but whoever did can give it me back. You've literally been mugged off. I have. Jamie, we should really let the Let's listeners go. Up. Let's wrap them up. Matt. You have been listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into In space. To space. What advice do you have to people this weekend? My just advice. some life advice. Just one sentence. That's all we need. Go watch First Man. I haven't seen it yet. Neither has Jamie. And we're going to watch it. And we'll all discuss it next week on the podcast. That's great advice. What about you, Jamie? Advice? Don't take life so seriously. Don't, try not to let work stress you out. Because, Matt, we're just on this little tiny speck of dust in this tiny tiny spiral galaxy so just go out get some chocolate dip it in a glass of guinness Mm -hmm. and enjoy yourself and imagine that some bacteria that you've just breathed out could somehow be floated up into the upper atmosphere get covered in soot and blown across the interstellar winds to be picked up by a passing star to eventually be flung out into the rest of intergalactic space to seed the entire universe. I'd like to say goodbye to everyone. 
Have a great weekend. Bye-bye, Spodcats. Love you loads. See you. Bye-bye.